If you have your Bibles, turn with me to the Gospel of Mark chapter 11. The Gospel of Mark chapter 11. We started looking at this passage <clears throat> this past week, uh, the, what is commonly known as the triumphal entry of Jesus, and this morning we are going to look at it once again. So I'm going to read, starting with verse 1, I'm going to read down to verse 11, and then I'll pray, and then we'll begin to work through this text together. The Word of the Lord says this, now when they drew near to Jerusalem, to Bethphage and Bethany at the Mount of Olives, he, speaking of Jesus, sent two of his disciples and said to them, Go into the village opposite you, and as soon as you have entered it, you will find a colt tied on which no one has sat. Loose it and bring it. And if anyone says to you, Why are you doing this? Say, The Lord has need of it, and immediately he will send it here. So they went their way and found the colt, tied by the door outside on the street, and they loose, loosed it. But some of those who stood there said to him, What are you doing loosing the colt? And they spoke to them just as Jesus had commanded. So they let them go. Then they brought the colt to Jesus and threw their clothes on it, and he sat on it. And many spread their clothes on the road, and others cut down leafy branches from the trees and spread them on the road. Then those who went before and those who followed cried out, saying, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the kingdom of our father, David, that comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. And Jesus went into Jerusalem and into the temple. So when he had looked around at all things, as the hour was already late, he went out to Bethany with the twelve. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. God, we thank you again for your word. We thank you for the opportunity to spend a couple of weeks on the triumphal entry of Christ. Lord, we ask that you would increase our faith for having spent time in this passage of Scripture. We ask that you would, as I prayed last week, drive us into deeper worship drive us into deeper devotion to you and to deeper devotion to one another as a result of having spent time together. So help us. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, as I told you last week, this morning, uh, spending some time here in Mark chapter 11, this is an appropriate place for us to close out our study on the gospel of Mark for 2023. Lord willing, we'll pick it up uh, in early to mid-February, um, but it's been good and is good this morning for, for this to be the second week that we're contemplating this passage of Scripture together, that we're giving ourselves space to consider uh, this particular event. It's a significant event. It's an event that is recorded in all four of the Gospels, and last week we worked through 
the first six verses. So this morning, even though I read it in its entirety, just so we you know, could kind of get the lay of the land again and remember where we are, I'm going to focus um, for the most part on verses 7 to 11. Uh, and in doing that, what we see, our text is opening up at verse 7 with, uh, with um, the disciples, two of the disciples bringing back the donkey to Jesus. And before Jesus gets onto the donkey, uh, they, uh, the disciples there, they uh, put clothes on the back of this uh, uh, beast of burden and, and they form uh, this uh, saddle of sorts. And as Jesus rides into the city on this donkey, we see that more clothes are placed on the road along with uh, palm branches, or as the, the NKGV translates it, as uh, leafy branches from trees. Now, John's account, if you were to read the Gospel of John, you would see that his account uh, puts the triumphal entry of Jesus after the resurrection of Lazarus and after um, Mary anointed uh, Jesus' feet with oil. Okay, People knew that Jesus was at Bethany, which is where he rode in from. Okay, He started at Bethany on the donkey and he rode into the city from there. And he, So people knew that he was coming uh, into Jerusalem. In fact, even the religious leaders that we so often see conflict with as we work through the Gospels together, even the religious leaders knew, and uh, they were already plotting to kill Jesus, and they were plotting to kill Lazarus as well. We see in John 12, 11, for instance, um, it says the, the, the reason why they were plotting to kill Jesus and plotting to kill Lazarus, whom Jesus had resurrected, you know, temporarily, it's, the reason is this, on account of him, on account of Jesus and him raising Lazarus from the dead, many of the Jews went away, went, went away from the Pharisaical teaching and believed in Jesus. Again, we see that in John chapter 12, verse 11. So we have every reason to believe that those who were laying down their clothes and palm branches, uh, it, it was a lot, I think it was a lot of people there. Like th this was a, quite a, a gathering, quite a collection of people. And this road that was made uh, for Jesus out of clothing, this road that was made for Jesus out of palm branches uh, came from the Mount of Olives, okay, around where Bethany is, to the city, uh, Jerusalem. And this isn't just <clears throat> some random act. Think of it like a uh, a red carpet. This would, kids, be a good way when you picture a king or royalty or you see something like that in the movies. What do you see them un unroll before the royalty? Right? You see a red carpet, right? And, and this would be like a, a red carpet moment, if you will. Uh, in other words, it's a king's welcome. This is a king's welcome. And it's reminiscent, if you're familiar with your Old Testament, of Elisha in 2 Kings having Jehu, the, the, the son of Jehoshaphat, anointed as king. Again, if we were to harmonize this account with, with, with John's account, right, we see, uh, again, Mary anointing Jesus with oil before he rides in 
to Jerusalem. But in the second Kings passage, we see Jehu anointed with oil, and we see that he's charged um, by Elisha, but ultimately by God. He's charged in the name of the Lord to wipe out all of the house of Ahab, which if you remember, Ahab was a wicked king. And and he was also charged to wipe out Jezebel, who was a bell worshiper who killed prophets of the Lord. And he was to wipe out the priests of Baal. And what does Jehu do? He does exactly that. He actually eradicates for a time Baal worship from Israel. So Jehu, he, he brought about judgment in the name of the triune God. But if we were to back up in 2 Kings and we were to, we were to go back and, and we, uh, right after Jehu is anointed and chosen by God through Elisha to execute this judgment on Israel, we, we would see this, 2 Kings chapter 9, verse 13. Then in haste, every man, okay, that was around at the time that this happened, they, uh, every man of them took his garment and put it under him, under Jehu, on the bare steps, and they blew the trumpet and proclaimed Jehu is king. Right? All those that, that heard about this new king, this anointing of this king, they spread out their garments on the ground and they announced his kingship. They announced his kingship. Now, toward the end of my sermon this morning, I'll make it more clear how Jesus's, his triumphal entry is connected to what we see Jehu do in 2 Kings 9. But for now, what we need to see is there's a similar entrance, okay? There is a similar honoring clothes, right? We see palm branches that make the carpet that King Jesus rides in on, right? He is honored as king as he's descending down from the Mount of Olives, from the area of Bethany that is on the outskirts of the city. Now, I told you last week that there is a lot of Old Testament imagery uh, here for us. And, and I've already begun to show you some of that Old Testament imagery this morning, but I want us to see more of it because, again, I think it's very faith-building for us to consider it. So if you have your Bibles, and I hope you do, turn to Ezekiel chapter 11. Ezekiel chapter 11, and just, you know, kind of put your finger there on Mark chapter 11. And as you turn there, let me just give you a bit of context um, just quickly. <clears throat> Ezekiel 11 uh, is, is situated for us in a time which Jerusalem fell under the judgment of God in 586 B.C. And during that time of judgment, Ezekiel, he was given a vision from God. And that vision was related to God's glory leaving Jerusalem and going up to the Mount of Olives. So this, this vision that Ezekiel is given, it's a vision in which God is telling him and God is telling him to proclaim that his glory has left Jerusalem. It's gone up to the Mount of Olives. Look with me, verses 22 and 23. Then the cherubim, and kids, cherubim are, are these crazy-looking angels, okay? 
But cherubim lifted up their wings with wheels behind them, and the glory of the, of, God, of the God of Israel was over them, and the glory of the Lord went up from the midst of the city, again, the city speaking of Jerusalem, okay, and stood on the mountain, and then this is significant, that is on the east side of the city. Now, the mountain on the east side of the city is the Mount of Olives. Now, where is Jesus descending from when he rides into Jerusalem on a donkey? The Mount of Olives, right? If that were a quiz, y'all would have bombed it. Goodness. <laughs> right? he, he's coming from the Mount of Olives. And, and with this Old Testament imagery, I want us to see something that at the time, the disciples and the multitude uh, that, were, uh, that were shouting Hosanna in the highest, they weren't connecting this, but it's exactly the message that our triune God was sending. And so if you're taking notes, and kids, if you're taking notes, you can jot this down. Jesus is the glory of God. Jesus is the glory of God. If Ezekiel saw in his vision from the Lord the glory of God leaving the city of Jerusalem, then what we see in the triumphal entry is a reversal of that. Right? What we see there is the glory of God returning. And again, that should, that should be encouraging to us as Christians Right? We, we see the intentionality of Jesus coming in and receiving a king's welcome and his coming from the Mount of Olives was, in fact, the returning of the glory of God. Hebrews chapter 1, verses 3 and 4. He, speaking of Christ, is the radiance of the glory of of God in the exact imprint of his nature, and he upholds the universe by the word of his power, after making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become as much superior to angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. Jesus, who's truly man, he's truly God. Right? And the testimony of Scripture is that he's the radiance of the glory of God, that he is the exact, meaning he's the precise imprint of God's nature. And this Jesus, who's truly man and truly God, he upholds the universe. He sustains the world by the word of his power, right? He's truly, right? When we see Christ through that scripture, right? He's truly the king of kings. He's truly the Lord of lords. And it's only the king of kings and the Lord of lords that could provide, right? Again, this Hebrews passage, what? Purification for sins. And he did just that, right? The king descended into Jerusalem from the Mount of Olives and he conquered. Right? We considered that a lot last week. But the king conquered, and it was a, a greater conquering than that of King Jehu. Right? It was a greater conquering over the enemies of God. It was a greater conquering than that of the Baal worshippers. Right? It was an everlasting freeing of spiritual captives. And we're included in those who were freed, right? It was a fatal blow to our unseen enemy. 
it was a setting of wrongs, right, right, cosmically speaking. And it happened through our king going into Jerusalem, suffering many things, the chief of which was God's white hot wrath for our sins. And what King Jesus did was successful. It really did free us. It really did make us right with the Lord. It really was a crushing of the serpent's head. And we see that point made in the Hebrews passage that I read to you just a moment ago. Right? The evidence that all of this was successful, the evidence that King Jesus really was successful is that he, quote, sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. Verse 3, right? Jesus sat down. It's finished. He's ruling. He's reigning. Again, he has the scepter, Genesis chapter 49 that we looked at last week, and the scepter will not pass from his hand. Right? He possesses the scepter, eternally speaking. His rule, his reign knows no end. Now, I love that Jesus didn't sneak into Jerusalem. But he didn't sneak there where death awaited him. Right? This Jesus who set his face like a flint, this Jesus who we saw speed walking a couple of weeks ago to Jerusalem, he comes in on a donkey and people are singing, right? They're shouting, they're rejoicing, they're announcing the salvation that Jesus alone brings. But this is where we see again this morning both a revealing and a mystery there's a revealing in that the multitude is proclaiming messianic fulfillment in Jesus, but there's a mystery still here in that while they're declaring the scriptures to be fulfilled by Jesus, they, just like the disciples, they didn't readily recognize, even as they rejoiced, right? They didn't understand the full scope of what they were doing or that they were playing a part in declaring Jesus as the long-awaited for Messiah. Again, we saw last week, if G, you know, Jesus' own disciples didn't connect all the dot, dots until after Christ's glorification, then the multitude here is even more so unwittingly declaring messianic fulfillment. Right? And that's interesting for us to just think about, isn't it? Right? The, the scriptures were being fulfilled, and the people that were declaring the scriptures to be fulfilled weren't fully realizing that they were doing it. Which drives my confidence in the Word of God all the more. But it reminds me of Caiaphas, if you remember him, right, in the Gospels, the high priest during the first advent of Jesus, right? He was the leading voice of the mob that led to the crucifixion of Jesus. You don't have to turn there, but let me just read to you John 11, verses 45 to 52. It says, Many of the Jews who had come to Mary and had seen the things Jesus did believed in him. But some of them went away to the Pharisees and told them the things that Jesus did. Then the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered a council and said, what shall we do? For this man works many signs. If we let him alone like everyone else, if we let him alone like this, everyone will believe in him. And the Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation. And one of them, Caiaphas, 
being high priest that year, said to them, You know nothing at all, nor do you consider that it is expedient for us that one man should die for the people, and not that the whole nation should perish. Now this he did not say on his own authority, but being high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus would die for the nation, and not for the nation only, but also that he would gather together in one the children of God who were scattered abroad. The Jewish leaders were concerned that Jesus was a threat to their way of life and to their influence, and that if their, influenced, if their influence diminished, so would the nation of Israel. So they began a plot, but the way in which Caiaphas leads them in this wicked plot, right, he concludes that they should kill Jesus. He speaks in such a way that it demonstrates the sovereignty of God over the mouth of man. Right, it sounds like Caiaphas is preaching the gospel there, doesn't it? Right? That the Lord is sovereign over his messianic fulfillment. Right? He advances his plans, he advances his purpose, and we get a glimpse of that and how people play a part in accomplishing God's plan and God's purpose, even in their free choices without being fully cognizant that they're even doing it. Right? So going back to Mark, right, this multitude is participating. This multitude is declaring true things about Jesus, biblical things about Jesus, but they don't even understand the depths of what's going on, right? And we have completed canon of Scripture, and still yet we see through a mirror what? Dimly, right? Now, what's significant about what's being shouted? What's significant about what's being saying here. Look back at our text, starting with verse 9 in Matthew 11. Then those who went before and those who followed cried out, saying, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the kingdom of our father David that comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. Now, a few things. Okay, First, the people are declaring Psalm 118 over Jesus, and they're doing it in the spirit of Psalm 148. So first, Psalm 148, right? In, in Psalm 148, we see a command there for all of creation to praise the Lord, which is appropriate considering Luke's account of the triumphal entry and his recording of Jesus saying to the Pharisees who scolded him as he rode in on a donkey and, and they told Jesus to tell his disciples to be quiet. If you remember, right, what did Jesus say in response? He said, I tell you, if they keep quiet, the very what? Rocks, the very stones will cry out. Luke 19, 40. Cry out in what? Cry out in praise. Would cry out in praise, right? All of creation proclaims this Jesus as Hosanna, as the one who saved. Psalm 148, 1, praise the Lord, praise the Lord from the heavens, praise him in the heights. And so we see praise as the aroma of Jesus's triumphal entry. We see praise in response to the glory of God coming back into Jerusalem. Now, Psalm 118 is the verbiage of what the disciples in the multitudes are singing. And Psalm 118 is a psalm of praise to God for the mercy that he 
has provided to Israel, for the salvation that he has provided to Israel. Right? Hosanna was an, originally a cry for help. In our context, it's a cry of happiness. Not please bring salvation, but salvation has come. Salvation is here. And the part of that psalm in which we find familiar language, borrowed language, that is in turn ascribed to Jesus as he enters into Jerusalem on a donkey is verses 25 and 26. Save now, I pray, O Lord, O Lord, I pray, send now prosperity. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. We've blessed you from the house of the Lord, right? So this prayer of salvation turns in the New Testament at the triumphal entry to a praise of God answering that very prayer, that very psalm. Now hold that thought for a moment. Remember last week I took us to Genesis 49. And I want to take us back there again this morning and, and revisit, revisit the significance of that word Shiloh, if you remember me mentioning that last week. But look back there with me, Psalm 49, starting with verse 10. It says this, The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor a lawgiver from between his feet, until Shiloh comes. And to him shall be the obedience of the people, binding his donkey to the vine, and his donkey's colt to the choice vine. He washed his garments in wine, and his clothes in the blood of grapes. And of course, we know, or should know, at this point, that this mysterious Shiloh being referenced here is Jesus, right? Is the Messiah to come. And as we saw last week, Jesus is the greater Judah. Jesus is the one who forever holds the scepter. Jesus is the one who will prove the obedience of the nations. And this name, Shiloh, means to whom it belongs. To whom it belongs. So we could read Genesis chapter 49, verse 10 as follows. The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor a lawgiver from between his feet, until he to whom it belongs comes. Right? Judah's scepter was a borrowed scepter. Right? It didn't belong to him. Right? Psalm 118, verse 26, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. The prophecy in Genesis, pointing to the scepter holder being Judah until he to whom it belongs comes. The people seeing as Jesus rides into Jerusalem, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. He to whom all things belong came. The glory of God came. He rode in on a donkey and he brought his salvation with him. He himself is salvation. So Jesus is the glory of God. The second and just the last thing for us to consider together this morning is Jesus is the temple of God, the one who gives us access to the holy of holies. Look with me at the very last verse in Mark 11. Jesus went into Jerusalem and into the temple. And when he had looked around at all things, I just love that, I don't know, the imagery that brings to my mind, just Christ, look, like he gets into the temple and he just kind of, he surveys it. He kind of measures it up, if you will. It says, 
He looked around at all things as the hour was already late, and then he went out. He went back to Bethany, went to Bethany with the 12. That can seem just upon first glance so just anticlimactic, right? right? We've been building toward this. He gets to the temple. He looks around. Okay, it's a little late. Let's turn back. Let's turn back around, pack this thing up, and go back to Bethany, right? But is it not also anticlimactic that Jesus rode into Jerusalem on a donkey? Right? It feels like he should have, again, last week, right? He should have ridden in on a horse with a sword or something. I, I, you know, that's how I would have pictured that this would have gone down. Right? And then in Mark's account, it's not until the next day that Jesus comes back to the temple and he purges. The, you know, he begins to do this purging in the temple there. But the temple in Jerusalem... The epicenter of the religious life of the Jewish people. That's Jesus' destination in the triumphal entry. And we can think about it this way. The glory of God that left the temple arrives back at the temple. Right? The glory of God arrives back at the temple. And I want to explain this a bit more. Right? What, what perhaps when we think of that word temple, and when I say even the phrase Jesus is the temple of God, one of the things that perhaps comes to many of our minds is that the Bible says that we are the temples of what? The Holy Spirit, right? We see that 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 19, as it relates to how to treat our bodies and purity and things of that nature. But listen, us being a temple of the Holy Spirit, that's based on Jesus who's the glory of God making the Jewish temple where all of those Levitical sacrifices took place. It's based on him making that obsolete. And that's critical for us, right? The temple in Jerusalem was always temporary. It was always meant to be temporary. It was always a shadow pointing toward the substance, which is a greater temple. Right? It was always pointing to someone who would give us all, and by us all, I mean all of us who have been personally saved by God through Christ alone. But it was always pointing to someone who would give us all access to the Holy of Holies. And to have access to the Holy of Holies is to have access to God himself, which means that Jesus is the one who alone gave us, you and me, access to God. That's glorious news for us right? Apart from that, we have no access, and we should sleep in every Sunday morning. There's no access, no hope. This is why it's significant that the curtain going into the Holy of Holies, reserved for the high priest only, was torn from the top to the bottom at the crucifixion of Jesus, Matthew chapter 27, verses 50 and 51, right? It signified that the temple in Jerusalem was no longer the heart of the religious life of God's people, and it never will be again. Christ made the shadow obsolete. He made the shadow unnecessary, and we see Jesus even call his body a temple, which again made it possible for our bodies to be temples. But his body was the first temple, if you will. And this, and this was such a foreign way to, to speak in Jewish culture. But we see Jesus do this, John chapter 2, verses 18 to 22. The Jews answered and said to him, what sign, right? They're always looking for a sign, weren't they? What sign do you show to us since you do these things? 
He's doing things, and the doing of the things is not the sign that they want. They want a different sign to validate the other signs that he's doing, right? Makes sense. And Jesus answered and said to them, this is his answer, destroy this temple, and in three days I'll raise it up. The Jews said, it's taken 46 years to build this temple, and you'll raise it up in three days? And then John inserts his commentary. So helpful for us, right? But he was speaking of the temple of his body. Therefore, when he had risen from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this to them, and they believed the scripture and the word which Jesus had said. You can see the confusion of the Pharisees, right? They think he's talking about the temple in Jerusalem, but Jesus was talking about his own body, a greater temple. Jesus made the temple in Jerusalem obsolete by the giving of his own temple, the giving of his own body, right? And not just the giving of his own body to death, right? But the bodily resurrection, which changed everything. And in doing that, in bodily resurrecting, Jesus gave us access to our holy God. He made it possible for you and I to be temples of the Holy Spirit, right? In other words, Jesus, the glory of God, is our way into the presence of our triune God. We don't go through a priest. We come through Christ. And if that message wasn't clear enough, right, God destroyed the temple in judgment over Jerusalem in the year 70, right, within the same generation of those who would have been eyewitnesses to the death and resurrection of Christ. One final aspect of this I want to end on this morning. I just read to you John 2 where Jesus calls himself a temple. But back in John chapter 1, if you just flip back one chapter... We see John say this about the Lord, and you'll be familiar with this passage. The Word became flesh, and what? Dwelt among us, and we beheld His glory. The glory is of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. Right? That word that's translated in our English translations as dwelt, that the root word for that means tabernacle. Right? Dwelt means tabernacle, and that word has implications for the Jewish temple. Right? John, under the inspiration of the Spirit, he makes the intentions of our triune God clear right in the beginning of his gospel. Right? It is what our world is more mindful of around the Christmas season. The Word, right? the eternal Word of God, the Christ, became flesh, and in so doing, he tabernacled among us, and we beheld his glory. What glory? The glory of God. A glory that we could not otherwise be in the presence of. Right? Christ, whose person and work made the temple of Jerusalem obsolete, is God incarnate, who tabernacled among us, and thus gave all Christians entrance into the Holy of Holies. Therefore, it's Christ we look to, and we see the glory of God as a people who aren't estranged from God, but are reconciled to God. As a people who, as one hymn writer said, people within the veil. And we have much to praise God for, for that. Amen. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. God, we thank you again for time in your word. We thank you that we have access to you through Christ. God, we thank you for just the implications for our lives so many years later of that triumphal entry as Jesus surveyed the temple, Lord. 
So thank you for reconciling us. Thank you for hearing our prayers. Thank you for allowing us to commune with you. And I pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen.